Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 9. I'll read verses 9 and 10, and we'll skip down to verse 13. Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 9, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Verse 13 says, Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. I don't have the slide for you, but we'll jump over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, just once again to bring in these three and the concept basis for reason, the reason why we have these three mentioned here. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12, Moses speaks to the Israelites before they go into Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 12, he says, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land. And here are our three, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock and the land of which he swore to your fathers to give to you. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless this gathering tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings and for your goodness. Father, we thank you for the word that you do prepare for us, Father, that we might gather here and fellowship around it and learn of it. Father, I do pray for your strength tonight, Lord, that you'd enable me to bring your word as you'd have me to, Father, and that it would be received as you would have it be received by each one of us, Lord. Help us to take hold of every single thing and every ounce of every single thing, Lord, that you offer to your people. Help us to lay hold of those things. We praise you for them, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Once again, last week we considered those three elements of the first fruit offering there. Last week, in particular, we considered the grain offering, if you recall. Uh, We looked over, well, where grain offerings were offered throughout the Old Testament there and how they were offered. We considered that they were brought in a number of different forms in our opening passage here. We see that it was brought as, well, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 14, you can read there, If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain, roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads. goes on to talk about putting oil on it. We'll get there in just a moment. But elsewhere you can read in the Old Testament how it was brought in cakes, Baked in an oven, baked in a pan, sometimes covered, sometimes not. A number of different things, a number of different methods by which you can prepare this. Loaves we can read elsewhere in Leviticus 23. And One of our points was last week, and that we will also see in the other elements that we're considering, is that grain needed to be prepared to some measure before it was brought to the Lord, offered to the Lord. Our main point was that... Well, the grain was a picture, a picture of the word, that is Jesus in print. The grain and the bread that that grain comprises, it's Jesus presented to God's people as it's written out here and even spoken to the heart by the Lord himself. We're intended to receive that word from him. We're intended to take the word as it's presented to us and prepare it for ourselves, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, not just the gospel of peace, but the preparation of that gospel, taking different individual elements and components that are there. And as the Lord leads and directs, taking those and 
putting them together to where you have the whole being something more than just the sum of its parts. And I made the correlation to those cookies that I make or any other dish that you make or some kind of project that you make where you take different components and elements and you're familiar enough with them that you know how they work, how they come together and build something that is greater than just the individual pieces by itself. And that's what we are given to do with the word, this grain that the word is for us, this bread of life that is, well, Jesus in print. And so that being said, with those kind of thoughts in mind and that foundation that's presented there, we move on to the next element that's presented, and that's the oil uh, that we're going to consider tonight. Now, as you look at oil in Scripture, almost always, if not always, it's speaking of olive oil. I don't like olives as a rule, but I like olive oil. I use it rather frequently, uh, but not like these folks did. Uh, like the grain that was brought, um, well, it's one of these elements that symbolize, as we read just a moment ago, the abundance that the Lord gives to them, naturally speaking, certainly. But that natural abundance is a picture and an illustration of the spiritual abundance that the Lord wants to give. Certainly, we just read that a moment ago, that if they were to obey in, De- in Deuteronomy 7, if it comes to pass, you listen to these judgments, keep them and do them and all this, I will bless you in this land of plenty, and there will be natural abundance. But is it just natural abundance that the Lord wanted for them? Obviously, we understand it is not. We're going to talk more about that here in just a moment. But he presented that as a picture for them. And oil was one of those things that they sought abundance in, naturally speaking. They wanted it, the fruit of the tree, olives. Uh, As I always do, or nearly always do, I looked into it to figure out and see how it's done, how olives are harvested, how they're grown, and that sort of thing. And it is a remarkable process even today. But uh, regardless, however, whether you do it in the archaic method that they did back in the old days, or if you do it the manner that they do today with technology and, and other things, machines and the like, it's a process still. It's a process to extract that oil from these fruits. Somewhere between 80 and 100 pounds of olives are required for the production of one gallon of olive oil. Now, understand I didn't say 80 to 100 olives. I said 80 to 100 pounds of olives. So pretty good-sized amount of olives have to be squeezed down in whatever method that you use in order to extract a gallon, a gallon of olive oil. Now, to us, we might not go through a gallon of olive oil very quickly. I don't know how you cook. I'm not sure exactly what, what you do in your kitchen. But they use the olive oil for more than just cooking. They used it for, well, they would sell it if they had the abundance of it. They would also, uh, lamps burned olive oil. So it was part of their day-to-day, let me just say it that way, part of their financial well-being was the abundance of the olives, and part of their just day-to-day life status was involved and tied to that olive uh, to some measure. Um, So in order to bring it about, they had to take in and they had to reap those olives. They had to harvest the olives, they had to press those olives, they had to filter the oil that came from it, had to collect the oil, save it, store it, sell it, whatever the case might be. And it was all part of a process, and uh, pretty extensive but cool process, and it was crucial to what they did. I'm not going to go into all of the process just now. It's a pretty neat thing if you want to look it up. Now we might talk about it more here in just a moment, but suffice it to say, it's a process. Now, I just mentioned a moment ago that natural abundance, while they were looking for that, particularly from this fruit and the other two elements that we've been considering and will consider, 
Even though they were looking for natural abundance, the Lord is looking for spiritual abundance, certainly. Proverbs 21 and verse 17 is just one place where it speaks, well, about the disinterest that the Lord has in natural abundance being the focus for his people. Very simply, no context, as Proverbs oftentimes are, not a whole lot of before and after. It says, he who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. And I'm going to take that as he who focuses, loves natural wine, natural oil, natural abundance, these things, is not going to end up being rich spiritually, particularly if that is their focus. If you focus on those things, even though it doesn't say it in the Old Testament, Jesus had yet to say, uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But it applied there, didn't it, even in this day? He who loves pleasure, he who seeks first the wine and oil of the natural uh, of the natural makeup, will not have the abundance in spiritual things because there's a trade-off there. Uh, if we do seek those things, there will be a lack. Micah says so in Micah 6 and verse 15. Speaking to Israel, he says, You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, naturally speaking, but not anoint yourself with oil. And I think he's speaking spiritually speaking there. And make sweet wine, certainly tread out the grapes, harvest them, squeeze those things out and have an abundance of things naturally. But if that's your purpose and that's your focus, you will not drink wine, particularly spiritually speaking. You won't partake of that joy and the other things that that comprises, as we'll talk about next Wednesday. It's spiritual abundance that God wants for his people. Just as the grain represents the word of God received from God processed by his people, prepared by his people. And then once they've prepared that and are preparing it, presenting it back to the Lord to consider and to take that offering of first fruits of that preparation. So the oil represents spiritual abundance and particularly, specifically for our concerns tonight, as the Holy Spirit that it represents. The abundance. Grain is the word. The oil is that Holy Spirit to us. We see that in a lot of different places. And I doubt that this is news to anyone that's present here tonight, but we'll look at a couple of different places here because that's what we do in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 21. Exodus chapter 29 and verse 21, we see that Aaron and his sons, those ones who were appointed to the priesthood, sons of Levi or descendants of Levi, Aaron's line specifically being those priests, they were consecrated so... And part of that consecration ceremony involved oil. You shall take some of the blood that is on the altar, uh, we see in verse 21 of Exodus 29. And some of the anointing oil, blood being a picture of God's redemption, blood of Jesus, salvation, cleansing from sin. And the anointing oil going on and involving the spirit there. And sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. The Spirit comes and joins us when we accept the Lord Jesus and the redemption work that takes place there. We see the blood and the oil both presented there uh, when they were anointed as priests. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you see another anointing that's there. One man among many who were anointed so. David himself, anointed as... A king, wasn't he? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. 
Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord. There's a direct correlation there for us. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. It wasn't just some magic oil that was put on him. It was a picture. It was a picture of the spirit being present. And even for us in this age as we are familiar with it, filling him. The spirit came upon him. And David was one who understood the word. Understood some things to a measure that others did not in that day. And so as we see these ones, Aaron and his sons consecrated, consecrated as priests, and we see David here anointed as a king. Aren't we anointed as kings and priests of God? Certainly. Isn't that what we are identified as? Saved by the blood of Jesus and then anointed and consecrated by the Holy Spirit for that specific well, that specific title, that specific place. We're intended intended to have that royalty about us as we walk. We're intended to honor the Lord as his priests, bringing ourselves as living sacrifices, certainly. Consecrated by God for a use, but not stopping there. Not staying there, as we consider often. There's so much more than just merely accepting Jesus and remaining as we are. Yep, I'm in his family. I'm in his household. I'm in his line or lineage, but there's much more. There's room that's there. Room for more communion with the Spirit. Room for more understanding of His Word. All of those things that... That's why we're here on a Wednesday night, I'll tell you that. Because there's more for us to attain to than merely understanding that Jesus is Lord. We understand this. Jesus described that need in John chapter 14. He described the situation to His disciples. A familiar passage I trust if you've sought, well, instruction and understanding of the Holy Spirit. Jesus describes to his disciples there that there are levels of involvement with the Holy Spirit. Uh, He says it this way, John 14, verse 16, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, meaning in addition to me, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he talks about different time frames, number one. Talks about with and in. We understand in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when it took place, that the Holy Spirit came and manifested himself to us in this church age, setting off, establishing the church, you can say, and moving forward with the full manifestation of the Spirit for God's people. Not only was Jesus with them at a time, His Spirit was appointed to them and was in them. And then not just was He in them, but they could be full. There are levels of that, right? The Spirit is in us today. We can read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 where Paul says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. We are in the Spirit. He does dwell in us when we accept the Lord Jesus. I want Him in my heart. His Spirit is there, but there are levels of involvement still today, we understand. Any believer can be described as being in the Spirit. Any believer can be described as having the Spirit with them, in them. But, well, you know what we're looking for? We're looking for overflowing. We're looking for full, all the way to the top. And we see that here in different places. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. After that, well, after that day of Pentecost, we see levels of 
Well, spiritual fullness, let me say it that way. Levels of spiritual involvement, if you want to say. Spiritual reception. Spiritual demonstration. Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. There were seven that were supposed to be appointed to the twelve when the twelve well, were becoming distracted from the duties that the Lord had for them in their position. Uh, there were seven who were given to minister there. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, with the Spirit with them, in them, not just that, um, full. Full of the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts 6.3. Full of it, replete with the Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, doesn't that suggest that there can be those ones who do have faith but aren't full of the Spirit? You can have both, yes. There are other individuals who are described like this. One of those seven was that man, Stephen. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, he being full of the Holy Spirit, this is when he's being stoned to death, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I am confident that he was overflowing with the Spirit in this moment, this tender moment, this kind of atrocious and tragic moment if you think about the pain and the sacrifice that was involved, but it was a glorious moment. Because in that moment, he was filled, full, replete with the Holy Spirit, and it showed demonstrated and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And those ones who were around weren't seeing the same, evidently, because they weren't full of the Spirit. Barnabas is another one. I'll just take you to Acts 11.24 quickly. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. It was a descriptor of him. It was a demonstration of who he was, different than not everybody else, but a number of other believers who well, could have been good men, good women, People of faith, but not full. And a great many people were added to the Lord, he goes on to say. Saul of Tarsus himself, a new believer. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I don't believe that he would have called him this if he was not indeed a brother in the Lord. But he wasn't yet indeed full, was he? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, he has sent me that you may receive your sight and be full, be filled with the Holy Spirit. All of God's people are presented the fruit, the olive of that Spirit. Some will process the fruit. Some will partake of that oil. And you could take that illustration as far as you want to. Some are given a cup. And they're more than happy to have some oil there, but there are levels of it, right? There's a difference between having a cup, having a full cup, and having a cup that is just overflowing with oil. There are different levels of the measure that we want to process, partake of, and be full of the Spirit. And it's, you're capable. You're capable of removing every ounce of blessing from that little fruit that the Lord has offered and given to each one of his children. That's what we see in this oil. 80 to 100 pounds of fruit required for one gallon. Has to be planted, has to be nurtured, has to be reaped in. Then that weight has to be carried. And the process has to begin from there. Has to be put into a basket, has to have a lever put down on it. This is how they did it in the old days, evidently. Put a weight on the end of that lever and it slowly presses down. And you see the oil starting to leach through these little wicker baskets that they have woven. That's a pretty remarkable situation. But then you have different ones after they've set that weight. Or they use threads, threaded 
press that they'll thread just a little bit more, a little bit more so as not to crush the pit. Or you have different ones who would take the pits out. Tedious. But they were willing to do that work because it was the method by which they wanted to extract the oil for themselves is how they had learned it. Then you have different ones who, once they've extracted all of the oil that they could from pressing or from that lever or whatever the case might be, they would then take that squished nastiness that was the olive squish. <laughs> I don't know what the technical term is for it. Then they would take that and they put it into a vat of warm or hot water. And then it would thin out what was remaining inside of that pulpy stuff. And then as oil does, oil floats on water, that would come up and they'd skim that off and they'd have another pull from those olives. What I'm trying to say is there were different ones who were willing to process, different ones who were willing to put in even extra work in order to receive from that fruit every piece that they possibly could of that oil. Every ounce, every little smidgen of fruitfulness and abundance that would come from that. You understand where I'm going with this, perhaps. You know, the... Well, the provision of the Holy Spirit is a fruit that's offered to us. Offered to all believers. There's a fullness that God's people should all desire to be overflowing. And there's a certain measure of work that's involved. Sometimes. Now, when you say work, I say this oftentimes, work is not a bad word always to us in the grace circles as it were. Work? Is there work involved? Yes, there is work involved sometimes. Now, there are different ones. I've told the story of Brother Norton Rainey. He wanted to be filled. He asked the Lord, Lord, if this is for me, I want to receive this. And I believe that he meant it. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he meant it because the Lord filled him right in his shower. He told the story all the time. I'm not telling tales out of school. (laughs) He was in the shower and he was crying out to the Lord and speaking in tongues in the shower as the Lord filled him in that moment. Uh, I think that there was work done on Brother Norton's part in a number of different ways as he was seeking that from the Lord. But the Lord, well, He determines. He determines what is required of us, doesn't He? Each one of us have a different story. If you've received the infilling of the Spirit, each one of us has a different story uh, of what kind of effort it took on our part. Now again, like Brother Norton, perhaps it didn't have a lot of visible effort that he put in. He's just soaping up or whatever the case might be. I had to, well, I had to go through all the effort of going to the altar and then when I wanted to go to the concession stand at camp, I got up and then I had to stop myself and make that terrible effort to go back to the altar. And then a third time when I got up to do it, after Missy came and shook me down and shared a verse with me, shared a scripture, and convicted me with all her heart and soul, I went back and then I went up again. Yeah, that was the work that I had to do. I had to get over myself. I had to get over myself. And I had to return to where blessing was waiting for me. You might say, well, that wasn't a whole lot of work. You're right. (laughs) It wasn't. But to me, it was hard work. In my situation and in my state that I was in in the moment, that was hard work for me to go back to that place where, well, where conviction was sending me. Your work might be different. Your effort might be different. But I can assure you that Oftentimes, that's exactly the work that needs to be done, is the effort that it takes to walk to a place like this where we know that the Lord has fellowship with His people. We know that He meets us in this situation, in this scenario, in this context. And it does take work. There can be a measure of work involved. But if we want that fullness, are we willing to work for it? Well, we're willing to work for a lot of other things. 
lot of education is sought after by the different ones that are in here. A lot of effort at moving up, and rightly so, as the Lord leads you. It's, you make that effort. Sure we do, because the end goal is what we're looking for. And the goal is worth the means, right? So, this is preparing the fruit that the Lord gives us. He offers us the fruit that is the Holy Spirit. That all of you might say. And we're called to prepare it, just as we're called to prepare the grain. Uh, that is the word of God. And it's our joy to do that. In Second Kings chapter 4, we see that borne out. We see it played out uh, in a, a sweet, sweet picture. Miraculous work. Last week we considered Elijah. I call her Elijah's widow. He wasn't married to her. <laughs> it wasn't that she was widowed to him, but Elijah's widow. This is Elisha's widow that he dealt with here. Second Kings chapter 4 and verse 2. This widow came up to Elisha, let him know that Elisha being the successor, if you will, to Elijah, the man of God, the prophet at that time for that area. She let Elisha know that she was in dire straits there and needed help. And he asked her, well, what has the Lord given you? What do you have in your house? Is what he says. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Saints, as a child of God, all you have is just access to the Spirit. That's all you have is just a cup. Sometimes it's just a matter of receiving. Sometimes it's a matter of processing. Sometimes you have the fruit and you just have to squeeze it a little bit. Sometimes, well, it might look different to different ones, but the Lord has provided us everything that we need in order to receive from Him what He wants to give us. She could have been satisfied with what she had there. Could have been completely happy. Like that one who said, I'm just going to make a cake. I can't make you anything. I'm going to make a cake for myself and my son. We're going to eat it. We're going to die. But instead, she offered the first fruits as they were to Elijah. And so this one here also didn't just remain satisfied with what she had. She had the option of doing something more. We see that in 2 Kings 4 and verse 3. Elisha says to her, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels, do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. Receive what the Lord has for you, is what he said. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Sometimes for us to do, to work, to undertake a process, whatever that process might be, is part of that easy yoke and that light burden that Jesus was talking about. When he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He doesn't say my yoke is absent and my burden is nothing. He says sometimes there are different works. There are certain efforts that you're called to undertake if you want to be in the yoke with me. And so that's what we're called to do, is to bear up that work, whatever it looks like. There can be a measure of action involved. It can feel rather heavy to us in the moment. It can feel rather difficult to us. feel rather undesirable to us. I don't mind saying it. I'm embarrassed of who I was, perhaps, but I was a silly kid. I had zero interest, man. Zero interest in seeking the Lord for those things. But there was something in me, and it was Christ in me, the hope of glory. 
and he wins out when we yield to him, when we submit to him. And we're willing to take the action that he has for us. He's willing to bless us. Saints, don't be afraid to press the fruit that the Lord offers to you. Don't be afraid to do the work that is required, that he enables you to and encourages you to and empowers you to. Don't be afraid to press the fruit that he offers you because he offers it freely. That being said, the oil that was processed there, that fruit that was harvested and all the preparation involved, well, we see back in our, in our uh, opening passage in Leviticus 23 and verse 13, how was it presented? It said, its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil. Leviticus 2.15, the first part of that says, you shall put oil on it. Most, most grain offerings, not always, but most grain offerings had grain and oil added, or had oil added to it. They were married together. They were hand in hand, you could say, in Scripture. Grain with oil mixed in or grain cooked in, or oil cooked into that grain, whatever the case might be. Why wouldn't they be married? Why wouldn't they be married, the grain and the oil, when you consider that the word that is the grain, well, it's most effectual when it's infused, enriched, ministered to us by the oil of the Spirit, right? Of course it's brought together. Of course that is how it's done. Because, well, you, could, you ones who have tried to cook for yourself, you make these instant cakes or whatever, you know, you might not have to add oil. But I guarantee you there's fat involved there somewhere, whether it's you know petrified inside of it or whatever the case might be. You have to have some kind of oil. And you can tell me that applesauce works just as well, but it doesn't. You have to have that taste. You have to have that emulsification that takes place, the chemistry. And just for it to be any kind of, well, as rich as it's intended to be, let's just say it that way. For it to have the richness and the quality of taste, texture, etc., etc., you want to have grain be what it's intended to be, oil is intended to be in, in it. We see that. In John 16 and verse 13, the Lord tells us that the Spirit's going to guide us into all truth. The Spirit gives us understanding of the Word. I'll go so far as to say that the Spirit, in His fullness in particular, makes the Word of God that would not be palatable otherwise, makes it palatable to us, makes it go down. You can read about John when he was receiving the revelation, a book given to him. It was rough in his stomach, it says, bitter, but it was sweet in his mouth. It was everything that it was intended to be, just as this word can be to us. There are things in here that our flesh does not want anything to do with. And even as believers, and well, believers desiring the Lord, there are things that we might turn our heads from because we don't want to wrap our minds around it. The Spirit gives us the enabling, gives us the boldness even, courage even, to make those things palatable to us and recognize the blessing that comes from it, the strength that comes from it. Kids don't want broccoli. Kids don't want to eat the quality stuff. Maturity brings that about to where they realize this is good for me. Numbers 11 gives us an interesting description of that perfect bread, that perfect food that was presented for them in the wilderness. How was it described? Numbers 11 verse 7 says, Now the manna was like coriander seed in appearance. And its color like the color of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones, prepared it, if you will, or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it. They worked for it, even though it was provided by the Lord. And look what its taste was like. 
Well, like the taste of pastry prepared with oil is how the New King James Version, that's a suggestion of the meaning of the word, and that's what it is. It was like the taste of oil in there. The oil and the richness, I imagine it tasted quite good until they got sick of it and they listened to their flesh and said, our soul loathes this worthless bread, so on and so forth. We can reject the things that God has for us. We can, well, dismiss those things or we can look and say, well, this is abundance here. This is life abundantly. This is more than I could ever have by myself. And it tastes good. It's rich. The Spirit takes this and applies it to this. Yes, oil and grain are intended to be together for a reason in the Old Testament. Intended to be together as these offerings and intended to be together in this age as the Word of God, as it's mixed with the Spirit and delivered to His people in the way that He wants to. I'll just close with just a quick little wordy type thing as we're winding things down here. Uh, Just a quick little word consideration there in Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 10. I'll show you a verse there just to kind of bring this home, I guess you could say. Moses was expressing the parameters of the grain offering in Leviticus chapter 7, and he spoke of both types of offerings that can be given. With oil and dry was how he described it. Every grain offering, whether mixed with oil or dry, shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to one as much as the other. I'm not interested right now in where it's going, but how it's brought. There are a number of different terms that are translated as dry in the Old Testament, most of them refer to arid conditions in a land or the absence of water or something along those lines. Sometimes it, it means heat and burning, which makes sense. This Hebrew word here, when it says mixed with oil or dry, it means parched and oftentimes, most often translated ruined or laid waste to. As in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah was looking at Jerusalem after it had been laid waste to by Well, by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. I said to them, you see the distress that we are in. This is Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2.17. How Jerusalem lies waste, lies dry, you could say. And its gates are burned with fire. Now, saints, I want you to understand, I'm not saying that the word, when when Moses says, whether mixed with oil or dry, that the word is laid waste to. But I will say that oftentimes, It doesn't reach the magnitude that it's intended to. Jerusalem, as Nehemiah looked at it, said, this is not what God had for this to be in all of its glory, you might say. The representation of God's people and God among His people. It's laying waste here. And saints, the Word of God, taken and offered to God's people, and not being addressed and processed and worked and handled to the measure that the Lord offers us to handle and work and understand it via the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to a certain measure, I'll say it's a waste. It's a waste of abundance. It's a waste of what the Lord has for us, provides for us. We understand, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, verse 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. We understand the Lord doesn't give his word for no reason, but it's an opportunity oftentimes. It can be wasted to receive it and not make of it, prepare for us, and then offer to the Lord everything that it could be 
as we deal with it and we fellowship with him as we prepare it for ourselves. Saints, do not forego. You know, I can't say that strong enough. I can't say that. I can't say it strong enough. Don't forego. Don't forego the opportunity to prepare the word to the fullest measure that the Lord has for you to prepare it. And that means taking the oil of the Spirit and mixing it, combining it, seeking Him to bring it to us and to make it palatable, to make it rich, and to make it nourish us to the measure that a full strength, full mature, full grown man of God, woman of God, child of God is intended to be. And then offer him the first fruits of those labors as you've learned and prepared something that you can bring to him and say, I've received this. What do you want to do with it? And hopefully at some point he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But in the meantime, we learn and we fellowship with him and we draw nearer to him as we bring these things, these elements of these first fruits and learn what he wants us to.